Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. You're listening to Theater in College Hoops. I'm Subi. Alongside me today, we welcome back the Shark. So great to have the Shark back. No Taylor, unfortunately. He is out on his European honeymoon, I think currently in Florence. Going to go see our good friend David, the statue of David. Uh, And he was able to check out his beloved Packers in London, lose to the football giants at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Looked like a wonderful event. He was reporting live to me. Uh, basically saying, I don't know why he was reporting live to me. You're on your honeymoon. I I should be the last thing on your mind right now. But uh, he did let me know that Tottenham Hotspur Stadium was A-plus, a magnificent venue. So he went to London, currently in Florence. I think he's going to finish it off in Positano. So he's not with us, but we do have the Shark, which is terrific. I'm glad to have him back. We're brought to you by the Barnburner Podcast Network. Go subscribe on whichever device it is that you use. Your College Hooper of the Week this week, it's Sam Cassell Jr., former guard for the Iona Gales. I had no idea Sam Cassell had a son who played college basketball at the D1 level. This, again, a little bit of an Easter egg for the interview later today. Iona, keep that in mind. But Sam Cassell Jr., that is your college hooper of the week. I wish I was able to give you a little bit more on him statistically, what kind of player he was. I just did a little bit of research on Iona former players and I saw Sam Cassell Jr.'s name pop up. So he's worthy of being your college hooper of the week. We are brought to you by Royal Digital Marketing, a.k.a. RDM. RDM specializes in website development and digital marketing for small businesses and startups. So if you need a website, make sure to contact them at colin at royaldigital.co. That's C-O-L-I-N at royaldigital.co. Make sure to check out the website at theaterandcollegehoops.com. And you can always follow us on Twitter at CBB Theater. You should also follow me at Subi232 to find out where the feet is. And make sure to follow Taylor at Taylor Damel and the shark at the underscore shark underscore BB. Let's open the curtains. Massive episode today, but before we get to our main event, our main guest, it's great to have the shark back. Shark, welcome back. Thank you very much. You're you're acting like I was, you know, on the lamb somewhere. You know, no one knew where I was. I mean, I was. You know, we're going to get to this in the interview as well with uh, our distinguished guest. But he talks about a little something called twelve seven four. 
All right. I want you to remember that listener 1274. I've been doing the 1274 and it's been preparation for this upcoming college basketball season. Cause I don't know if you guys know, but I've picked the winner around, you know, December of the, of the tournament three straight years in advance. I know one of those years was a COVID year. I would have had the winner if they played that out, but I did get the previous two in Baylor and Kansas. So that's what I've been doing. I've been doing the 12-7-4. You guys will pick up on that when the time comes. And yet, you know, Taylor's not here. If he was here, I'm sure he'd be whining and crying about the Packers loss. Listen, buddy, until you're me, a commanders fan, where you're, you're, you've been, I've been taking on water for 25 years, right? You lost one game at brunch in London. All right. It's no big deal. You're going to be okay. You've had two quarterbacks your entire lifetime. Me, I got to burn the boats game tonight. You know, when this podcast comes out, Ron Rivera, burn the boats, man. This is it. You're going in there. You're getting rid of any sort of retreat. You're going in. You got to find a way to get this win. I apologize for my Twitter. It's been a lot of commanders and Ron Rivera this, Ron Rivera that. I hope I don't want to do this, guys. I really don't. But, yeah, sorry. I had to get that load off my chest right there, Father. It's good to be back, though. Good to see your face. You as well. And it, it, I feel very in a comfortable space here because it seems as if Pretty much, I mean, obviously we're a college basketball podcast, but almost all the fall episodes last year were started off with discussion of the commanders, whether or not you were going to be available, game time decision based off of uh, a costly turnover. And that's why I'm honestly floored to be, again, I'm going to be brutally honest with you, Shark. I'm very floored that you're here with me because we're just a few days removed from a Carson Wentz interception on the goal line. And then one of our good friends, he said, I feel terrible for the shark. They need a bye week when in reality, you got the complete opposite of a bye week in a four day turnaround. So I'm glad you were able to squeeze us in. Nobody feels terrible for me. All right. That's the biggest myth out there. People take joy in the fact when I'm down in the dumps and you know, the reason I, I think that's been a lot of personal growth for me over these years, dealing with all these devastating losses. I'm like that guy at the end of the bar that probably served in like Vietnam or something that, you know, has seen some shit. For me, the shit I've seen is just commanders and Redskins football and Washington football team football that has just whittled me down to a nub over here. So I I can handle it. It's okay. I'm glad to be back here. Power of positive thinking, as you say, and the opportunity that we had here today, Father, to interview, you know, hands down, if you were to, you know, take odds of the next up and coming coach in a mid-major program, I think we got... I think we got a one seed to say the least right here, because this guy has everything that you would want. He's got the passion. He's got the fire. He's got, he's building the pedigree. Uh, We're really, you know, honored to be able to interview someone that we think is really going to skyrocket and take off into the college basketball world. And we hope he remembers us as we go forward, because we're trying to do that as well. Right. Father. You're exactly right. And let's just come out with the name, Jared Grosto head coach at Bryant. It was a really fun interview. We were able to pick his brain like you had mentioned uh, on what, what was it? The two, four, 12, seven, four. So you're, 12, not, seven, four. you're not up. for. This I'm not program. sharp. I know you're not. I know you're not. All right? I know this I'm is, not sharp. You're not, you wouldn't be able to play for coach. Well, we, we actually got to that as well. Percentages wise, he would avoid me. He would avoid getting me the ball, but yeah, Jared Grasso was terrific. And especially in my, in my communication with him leading up to this, uh, he was excited to get on. He's clearly someone who's trying to build this program to a sustained winner, a perennial tournament team. Obviously, Bryant won the NEC last year, regular season conference tournament, uh, and they they lost to Wright State in that play-in game, but they were a, such a fun team. Peter Kiss 
was was spearheading them. And now he's got a couple of transfers coming in. So why don't we go ahead and get to this interview with Bryant head coach, Jared Grasso. It is our honor and privilege to welcome onto theater and college hoops, a man who ranks fifth all time in assists in Quinnipiac history. He ranks fourth all time in three point field goals made at Quinnipiac, a thousand point scorer a Quinnipiac Hall of Famer spearheading the reigning NEC regular season champions, the reigning NEC conference champions, tournament champions, excuse me, and a true rising star in college ball coaching circles. We got the head coach, Bryant University, Coach Jared Grasso. Coach, how are you today? Thank you for jumping on. So we'll be doing great. Appreciate you and Mark having me on, guys. Hey, so let me start real quick. I was scrolling through the timeline, right? And I jumped onto uh, to your basketball Twitter page, and I see this video of you coming out of the office, this sort of point of view coming out of the office, going down to the gym, to the practice facility. I loved it. Terrific production. Hat tip to your production team. Uh, but I also saw you bust out 10, 10 to 15 push-ups. You got any eligibility left, Coach? You know what? I missed about 15 games my senior year at the back injury. So I think I might have half a year left. I'm back in pretty good playing shape. So I want to get out there with them guys. But those days are uh, long gone for me, but still have the competitive juices. Clearly, clearly. So, hey, let's dive in now to your coaching history and, and let's rewind all the way back to 2009, if you don't mind. You're 29 years old and you take over as the interim head coach at Fordham. When we were 29 years old, we're barely getting our lives together, okay? And now here you are leading a D1 program. What was going through your mind at that time when you were tapped on the shoulder to lead that program? You know, it was a whirlwind. Um, it happened very quickly. You know, uh, I was given the job on, I think, December 6th and coached a game on December 8th. So you're in that, you know, you're trying to deal with your players and make sure those guys are okay. And, you know, a coaching change in the middle of the season is never easy and, our point guard transferred, uh, who was our best player, transferred a few days earlier um, to USC. So we were a little undermanned, just didn't have a lot of bodies. Guys in a couple of guys ineligible, a couple of injuries. Um, but I, I was thrown to the fire, so to, so to speak. You know, you always prepare to be a head coach. And I, I've done that from a young age. My father was a coach. I knew it was when I was done playing. I knew it was what I wanted to do. But you prepare to do it with a – you get – Hired in April, you have a press conference, you recruit, you have a summer, you have a, you have a fall, you have a, you build a culture, you build a program. You're not prepared with two days. You're just coaching a game. And then you're trying to figure out now what, you know, am I making changes? We can play the same way we do. What adjustments do we need to make? And we had some struggles early on, obviously, with the reason the change was made. And it, it was a difficult situation, but the best thing that ever happened for me in my coaching career, because in three months I learned everything the job entailed and you don't know it until you move over those 18 inches and see all the things that could get put in your plate. And at the end of the day, it's not, you're not giving advice. You're not giving, uh, you know, what you say goes and you're making the decisions. And it was, it really expedited my curve. And I tell people all the time, the best thing that ever happened to me was I was put in that position and then I didn't retain the job and went to work to Tim Clouse and was able to then evolve and improve and work for a guy who really helped me develop. Um, but those three months were probably the biggest thing in my coaching career for me, understanding what I needed to do the next time I got an opportunity to be a head coach. Coach, I read an article around that time, roughly 2009, uh, when you were at Fordham, um, you received a text message from Jay Wright. Everybody knows who Jay Wright is. And the text message said, keep doing a great job at Fordham, make it your dream job and everything else will take care of itself. 
obviously the advice seems to be working right now, but I'm curious what your reaction is to, to having that advice from someone who was doing very successful at the time and how you applied that every step going forward. Yeah, you know, so I've known Jay probably since I'm 14, 15 years old. He was coaching at Hofstra. My father played at Hofstra, was a Hall of Famer there, and they were recruiting me a little bit. I lived in the area, so I saw those guys. I was in that gym all the time. Played pickup there, spent a lot of time there. And he's one of those guys who just has a really good feel for, obviously, he's one of the best coaches and people in the business in terms of developing people, mentoring people, and He's just so smart about life and basketball. And, you know, at that point in my life, I'm 29 years old. I'm still a kid. I'm, you know, trying to figure out, figure it out on the fly. And, you know, those words meant a lot at that point. And it's something at that point, you know, I took it and, and applied it. And, and I felt that way about it. Like it was my dream job. I'm a head coach in New York at 29 years old. And, you know, it's, it's, I want to be a head coach in my 20s. It was one of my goals. It was a dream. But obviously we didn't have the results we would have liked that year. But I've moving forward kind of applied that to everywhere I've been. And, you know, at Iona for eight years, it was, it was a dream. I worked with a guy I loved. We were able to do some special things, approach some really good players. And then being here at Bryant's been unbelievable to me. And and Jay still, we've texted. And he, his thing is always be where your feet are, be here now. Like he always talks about those things. And, and it's really true in coaching and in life. And it's one of those lessons I now pay forward to my guys all the time and, it was great hearing that from him then to kind of put into perspective for me, you know, us as young coaches, we all think we'd be the next coach at Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina, and we all need to slow down a little bit. And regardless if I'm the director of ops at a division three school or if I'm the head coach at Kentucky, you got to enjoy the process and you, you do need to make your dream job and you do need to immerse yourself in all aspects of it. And that's one of the things that Jay, you know, really helped me with and kind of instilled in me. It really has been a remarkable journey for you. And I want to talk just one, a little bit more about that time at Fordham. So I think you finished one in 22 when you sit in your chair right now as the reigning conference champion and you look back on that time 13 years ago, did you ever envision yourself, you know, after the, after one in 22, when you're probably down in the dumps as low as you can be. And here you are as an NCAA tournament team, a conference champion, was this was this the plan? Was this envisioned by you, Coach? Yeah, I'll, I'm gonna be honest with you. The, the Fordham thing was never a deterrent to me. I always knew. I was always very confident um, in my abilities as, as a player because I worked really hard in it, and, and as a coach because I put a lot of time into it. And it's what I grew up in. My dad coached in high school, college, professionally, so I was just around the game. And so I was even at 29, and us going one and 22, and we had an undermanned roster. Kids played pretty hard. We just weren't good enough, and I probably didn't do a good enough job, but. I was very confident in my abilities to recruit and coach and run a program, even at that point. And I knew I was going to get another head coaching job in my heart. I knew the opportunity was going to come again. And I believed that. Now, this profession is very hard. And, you know, I was an assistant at Iona afterwards, which is it's hard. Guys don't get head coaching jobs out of the Mac as an assistant. And I was blessed. I got lucky. Right situation, right time. And we had a ton of success at Iona. But I never questioned that stuff for a minute. And I believe when we came here, we we're going to be able to turn the program around. Um, and it's because we get brought in really good players and guys who kind of buy into how hard we work. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about surrounding yourself with the right people. And I mean, I have an unbelievable staff. That's really a high major staff. Um, we've been able to bring in some really talented players from high major transfers to some really good players out of high school. And, you know, we've kind of found a niche in our recruiting and I believe this was going to happen. And, and, we put a lot of time into it. We work really hard at it. And, you know, I know 
because of that, I always believe at the end there's going to be some success. And that's why you, you take it day by day. You keep punching the clock, keep getting better. But I'm confident in, in my abilities as a coach. And it's funny. And, and I looked into all this stuff at that point because you do question, like, did other guys go through this? Like, this, it sucked. Believe me, like, I was miserable. I still believed in myself, but I, I didn't sleep very much, and I was not a happy human being. But then you look at Mike Krzyzewski's first three years at Duke, Jay Wright's first three years at Hofstra. Uh, um, there's a, a Greg Popovich's first year at uh, Division Three, who's one in 28. Um, Bill Sell's first year at uh, Oral Roberts, he won three games. So then you start looking at that and said, yeah, guys go through this. It's it's part of the your evolution and part of your growing and – it probably helped me improve. And then again, after that, I was able to work for someone who then helped prepare me and helped me evolve into who I am today. And what things worked out exactly as they were supposed to. And I'm blessed to be in the position I'm in now. Coach, two things really stand out about you as a leader. One, your relationship with your players, how much you care for them. And two is, and I'll just put it generally work ethic. It seems, you know, it seems you've mentioned your father a couple of times that was really instilled into you as a player uh, maximize who you are as a player. One thing that I thought was really cool uh, about the work ethic prong here is your your standard or your philosophy of the 12-7-4. Can you share a little bit about what that means for our audience so they can kind of understand who you are as a head coach? Absolutely. So Frank Morris was the coach at St. Agnes High School, legendary high school coach in New York. Um, coach Billy Donovan, uh, Tim Clues, and all his brothers played there. So the powerhouse high school program on Long Island. And that was their philosophy there and kind of style of play is similar to what Tim did at Iona. And we've carried over here playing fast, facing the floor, a lot of threes playing at a electric pace that, you know, they talked about seven seconds or less The Phoenix Suns doing that. Like Frank Morris was doing that 25 years earlier. Um, so that was their thing. 12, seven, four and 12 months a year, seven days a week, four hours a day. You want to be a professional basketball player. Like that is what it takes. Like, you look at the Kobe Bryant's and the Michael Jordan's and the LeBron's and all these elite guys like Kevin Durant, their work ethics are freakish. And if you want to be a pro, you do have control in that. Like I've never met a guy who worked at it, who really was 12, seven, four that didn't end up making money playing basketball. I'd never coach a guy in college, but very few guys have a work ethic like that. And, but that's, that's a separator. So for us, our guys, when we're allowed to be around them for 20 hours a week, we're in the gym, we're doing something basketball related for four hours a day. And our days off, and it's a blessing. I walk in the gym and in, into the, the facility at six in the morning. There's guys in yesterday working out. I leave at nine o'clock at night. There's guys in there working out. So we've started a culture of this is what we do. This is the work you need to put in. And for me in recruiting, I tell guys now on the front end, this is what we do. This is how hard we work. This is a standard you're going to be held to. If you don't want that, don't come here. Because if you don't love to play, don't come here. If you don't want to be a pro, don't come here. You can get a great education at a beautiful school, an up-and-coming basketball program. But if you don't love it and you're not going to work at it, we're not going to work. So I'm telling you now. So I think we've been blessed that we brought in guys who are committed to it and have a passion for it because – I've been very candid in recruiting. I just know that the kind of guys I need to be around and the kind of guys who, who are successful for me, because it's all I knew, you know, growing up, that's what was instilled in me. And I wasn't a great athlete or I just worked really hard at it and put a lot of time into. And it's the reason I saw it as a player. There were guys who were at 16 and 17 were much better than me. And by the time I was 20, I'm averaging, you know, I've already scored a thousand points and they're sitting on the bench at a high major school. 
And I always say, who won now? Well, they got where they went and stopped working. I got where I got and kept working because it was the only way I was going to be good. It's all I knew. And I've, I've carried that into coaching. I mean, to me, it's I'm very old school and blue collar with it. There's no magic trick. There's no – you got to work. And does that mean we're going to have success at the end? No. It's going to give us a chance to. It's going to give us a chance to reach our goals and your goals. But my definition of hard work is different than all you guys. And I'm going to teach you what it is. And there's times it's going to be hard, but we have to get through hard for us to become the team we need to become. And I do believe because of that, not just via basketball, and this is the relationship piece you discuss. like they know I care about them much bigger than basketball. And I spend a lot of time with these guys and make sure that we build genuine, authentic relationships. So when I coach them hard, they understand I'm trying to make you a better basketball player. I'm going to do that when we're down there, but you come up to the office, you know, I'll do anything to help you. And not just when you're here for the rest of your life. And my mission in this is to make sure these guys leave here and can be successful in life. It's the way my father did as a high school coach and seeing the effect that he had, he had on people's lives at the end of the day is the reason I coach and the reason that this is my passion. And um, I still have the competitive juices that I had when I was 15. I want to go win every game and compete because I'm a competition addict, but we coach to help these young men and help coach to put them in a position to be successful and guys with work ethics and understand what it takes, the discipline it takes to be successful, the work it takes to be successful, will have a chance to be successful in their lives. And for me, it's about trying to give them those tools to be able to do that. It's always refreshing to hear that, Coach. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, we had Frank Martin on, head coach at UMass, and I asked him, what does success look like to you? How do you define success? wasn't about the X's and O's, wasn't about the wins. It was about preparing these young men for life after basketball, after UMass, after school. So, you know, it, a lot of times you hear it and it could be lip service, certainly not the, the impression I'm getting from you and also Coach Martin. But speaking of success on the court, very successful season last year. I want to. I, I want you to take us into the nitty gritty, though, of that tournament game against Wright State. As a matter of fact, we actually had Clint Sargent on, uh, assistant coach for Wright State. So, if you need me to say, say any any words to Clint about last last year's result, you let me know, Coach. All right, he's a great dude. But uh, tell us about that. The lead up to that Wright State game, because look. You locked up your conference tournament, so you know you're in the tournament. But I'm curious to know the lead up of everything ranging from, you know, selection Sunday, what you guys did for that to pivoting and getting in the film room and knowing that you got to lock up Tanner Holden, Grant Basile, and a great Wright State team. And essentially, you're on the road, if we're being yeah. honest here. You're going to Dayton, which is right in Wright State's backyard. Can you take us through those few days from selection Sunday, what exactly you guys did? up until the final buzzer of that game, really. Absolutely. And the hard piece for me, you know, our conference tournament um, in the NEC and even when I was at Iona in the MAC was early. So you have that stretch. It's great for one reason because you have that stretch of time. You can actually enjoy it a little bit and you get a buzz about your program and the media stuff, which is important for, I mean, our university admissions are the highest they've ever been by far this year. So the effect of that stuff you do feel and you want that buzz for your program. You know, Brian came back. We're top uh, 1% return on investment. So that's out there that we're there with Yale and Duke and six teams in the NCAA tournament. So you get a lot of things that are much bigger than our basketball program out of it. The thing I didn't like the last two conferences we were in, early conference tournament championship, you have that stretch of 
half celebration. You're trying to get your guys back to practice. They're still, everyone loves them on campus and they're still hanging out and enjoying it. And you want them to enjoy it, but you got to lock back in because you're going to play a really good team. And so it's those, those days are hard because you don't know who you're playing. You don't know where you're going. You don't know when you're playing. You don't know if you're playing game. You don't know if you can play Tuesday, Thursday. So there's a lot of uncertainty with that in terms of the prep. So, you know, coach, you, coach, let me let me jump in there real quick. Do you have assistance sort of looking at bracketology, looking at different conference tournaments, being like, hey, yep. we may have to identify these guys as a potential matchup in this region. These guys as a potential matchup. Was that what you were doing? We were. And we kind of, we saw ourselves with Wright State a lot and people talked about it a lot. So that was one of the teams we started doing some like preliminary work on. So we did have some stuff done when we found out we were playing them, which was good. Um Obviously, we were hoping that we wouldn't be in a playing game, but was what it was. And that piece you can't control and the seating, you know, obviously Wright State being 10 minutes from Dayton. And I think it was the fourth time I've, uh, fourth time I've been to an NCAA tournament game in Dayton. We've never won there. At Fordham, we've been to Dayton four times. I've never won there. So I hope we're done going there. I'd like to – next time we're back in the tournament, which we're hoping is this spring, I'd like to get out of Dayton. Um but from selection Sunday on, everything moves quickly because now you're playing a couple days later and you're waiting on the travel stuff. You're waiting on the charters when you're flying out. So we're in the office working on video. We're trying to prepare for practice the next day. You don't know when you're leaving until 11 o'clock, midnight, the charter company gets back to you. So those moving pieces make it tricky. You just – I'd rather be in a comfort zone of, you know, we're leaving here. These are our practice times. So you're trying to piece it all together, your schedule for those days and – so it's a lot of the logistics stuff for our staff. You know, me and our assistants are starting to watch film and get ready for practice the next day. Um, and I thought we practiced pretty well leading up to the game. We were a little banged up physically. Um, you know, our guys, we had to grind pretty hard late to, to finish our year out. And we had some guys playing through injuries. So gave some guys some days off, tried to get them a little healthier. Um, and I, we were just a little flat in that game. We didn't guard very well. Um they, and they were very good. You know, you watch them on film and you're not 100% sure. You haven't seen their bodies, their size. And I thought they played well. I thought we were competitive enough to hang in, but we did not play well. Um, we weren't sharp and I could feel it. Like we weren't, we were really good to finish the year. We had a stretch where we played really good basketball. Like that Wagner game was about as good as you could play in that championship game. Um, and we weren't, we weren't, we didn't play as well as we could. And hats off to them. They outplayed us and they beat us. And, you know, it's a, it was the first step. And when it's guys going for their first time, it's kind of that excitement about being there that you, you want. They know they're going to win and they, they know that the goal is. But you still you haven't felt that on a college campus before where everybody loves you everywhere you go. And someone wants to pat you on the back, all this media stuff. You know, before I got here, Brian had won three games. The guys here never felt that. The university never felt that. You know, our administration hadn't been through preparing for that type of thing. So it was different for everybody. Um but now we want to take the next step, you know, obviously new conference and, you know, last year was last year. We got a new group and we're looking to hopefully take the next step and, and be a team playing again in March and hopefully have a chance to win some games in March. One of those advantages of playing on that Island Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday night of the tournament is everyone's going to watch you. And, you know, Subi and I, we, we, we were tracking you guys for a good extent, particularly going into the NEC tournament, but then, all of America is able to watch you guys play and you guys play a fun brand of basketball. You've alluded to it a couple of times, you know, you move quickly, you shoot a lot of threes, you space the floor, uh, you get up and down. We can ask you about kind of the press and all that and the condition that you got to get your guys into play. 
But one thing that, in you know, reading about you is you're a big analytics guy. And analytics is such a hot topic, topic issue right now. In the NFL, you got everyone talking about go for it on fourth down, go for two, all this crap. But for you, you really embrace the the component of it. And, you know, I everyone can talk about Ken Palm and offensive efficiency and all that sort of stuff. But is there a particular stat or quote unquote analytic that you and your staff really embrace that, you know, people may not have heard of before? Is there something that is very important to your team and when, what you instill in your players? There's a couple things and it's kind of changed as t- time has gone by. And it's actually funny. I, I was I didn't really know very much about basketball analytics until maybe 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I interviewed for the Rio Grande Valley uh, Vipers G League job. And Daryl Morey was with the Houston Rockets at that point. So I flew out there and Kenny Atkinson, who would coach the Nets, uh, we went to the same high school. So Kenny was an assistant with the Rockets earlier. And he's like, I'm telling you, you're going to go through like a, it's going to be an arduous process. I'm like, it's a coaching interview. How, I mean, we sat with, with I sat with Daryl and his three analytics guys for three hours. Then we went to lunch and like for them, like that G league thing was about trying things, doing different things, basketball wise, analytically. And it, it's really interesting. They brought a bunch of college guys, assistant at Iona interviewing for a G league job, but they saw we played fast and our style. I knew a couple of guys in the organization and was able and got involved with the job because of that. But so at that point before the interview, I'm like, all right, I better learn everything I can. So I'm studying for like two weeks not really grasping all of it, but just trying to get as much knowledge as I can. And as time has gone on, it, it, a lot of it sometimes has to do with the team we have. Like there's certain things that our pace and possessions per game are always first for me. We want to make the game as fast as possible. We want to play the highest number of possessions we can. Um, a lot of what we do defensively and the pressure is to make the game as fast as possible and try and speed it up. And we want to be at in a perfect game. We want to be above 80 possessions. Um, and again, it, sometimes it has to do with the team you're playing and how they attack or if they're going to pull the ball out after attacking pressure. But, you know, those things are always things we look at. Um, our offensive rebounding numbers are always things we look at. Our free throw rate is, is huge for us. Our rim protection rates are huge for us. Now, that was, it'll change a little bit with us now based on personnel. So I've done a lot of in this these last kind of three, three or four weeks of shooting stuff that not direct analytic numbers that would be on Ken Palm, but catch and shoot threes, catch and shoot threes in transition, threes off the bounce and half court transition, threes off the move, just to clean up our shot selection for guys to make them understand, all right, here's what you shot the last flu transferred from taking these shots. Here's what you're shooting now. There's a reason you're not allowed to shoot them anymore. Now we're at that point where I got to clean some things up. I give our guys freedom based on what you have the ability to do. And so that's something we've done over the last, and I, it's funny, I just went through all those numbers yesterday, and they they always, they always work out the way they're supposed to. Like the guy you think, he shot 25% last year, and you don't think he makes threes off the dribble, and then you see the numbers, and he's one for 10 of threes off the dribble. And so a lot of times your eye ends up being right. But the biggest thing with the analytics for me is numbers can't lie. So when we sit in the office and I sit and talk to my team, they can get mad about it because no one likes to hear things bad about themselves me included. And I talk about it all the time. I say, guys, it's not, it doesn't feel good to be told you don't do something well, but my job to help you improve. And when I'm telling you stats, like if you were shooting two for 22 from three, if your teammate was two for 22 from three and you had the ball in the wing and he was open in the corner, would you throw it to him? No. Well, you're two for 22 from three. Why should we let you shoot it? Like it's kind of a simple mathematical thing. So the guys who shoot it in more than you. So, so those, I think the numbers are big a for me and being able to show guys things 
And based on the team, there's certain things that if there's something I think we need to do last year, I knew we needed the offensive rebound. So it was a huge emphasis for us. I think we ended up being 12th in the country, country in offensive rebound percentage. But it can change on the year. I'm not a guy who's set in what we do offensively or what we do in terms of numbers until I see our team and kind of see the things that I think are going to put us in position to be successful. That whole story kind of just reminded me of my high school days. Obviously, you're playing at a much higher level, but it's so funny. First of all, the way you prep for that Maury interview, I feel like that's how I prep for the SATs or prep for any <laughs> test. I'm just like, look, I may not have it all down, but I know I got to study some of this. Um, and then I feel like we all know a teammate who's that, that teammate was probably me, Mark. Uh, we played together in high school where I was shooting sure. one of 20 and, and, you know, I'm wide open. Well, there's a reason I'm probably wide open, but you know, that just took me down memory lane right there, but I Hey, apologize, but I, would, I would have thrown it to you. I <laughs> well, I'm not unselfish. I would have got you that shot. Despite the analytics. Well, then I would have been screaming at you when you missed it. I would never throw it to you again. You already got one of them. I would have thrown it once. And then if you missed, you would never get it again. I, I can respect that. I'll tell you what, though, Coach, a little bit more background. I was a box-out, get-on-the-floor kind of guy. I'm not going to give you points. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some deflections. I'll probably be a pest in the passing lanes with my feet. I'll even give you some kickballs if, if that disrupts the offense. But that was pretty much my limitation there with, with hoops. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about this upcoming year, Coach. Two huge transfers, Earl Timberlake Doug Eater. Let me start with Dougie here for a sec, all right? Was he on your radar prior to the tournament, or did you see his incredible supernova performance with this all-time Cinderella team and say, okay, we got to have this guy? Like, I'm, I'm curious to know, was the sample size of the tournament, or was he on your radar prior to that? So I've known Doug since he was probably a sophomore, maybe going into his junior year of high school, um, guy who was helping, you know, a family friend of his was a basketball guy had reached out to me about him. I was at Iona at that point and, um, or maybe coming into my first year here. Um, and he was a kid who was a gym rat could make shots. So I knew who he was. I watched him play in high school. I thought he was a kid who down the line and he has, I didn't know him personally. Then I've learned he has the traits of the kind of kid who passes people by because of the way he works at it. Um, but then, we coached against them. Uh, so his freshman year, we played down at St. Peter's and uh, he, he played pretty well against us. We beat him pretty good, but he, he had a good game against us. And then obviously I still always followed the Mac, having been at Iona and local schools. So I watched him play on TV a few times, followed his numbers and obviously watching the NCAA tournament and, you know, his name and his hype picked up exponentially. But he's the kind of kid, you know, he's one of those kids who keeps getting better because he works at it. He's a tough kid. You know, you watch video of him, and I've watched, I thought I've watched every clip he's played in his college career. He's continued to improve. He's built his body up. Um, obviously, he's, he's a guy who can make shots, but there's a reason. He, he's a joy to coach because he just shows up and works. Doesn't have a lot to say. You know he just comes in the gym. He's got a bounce in his step. Like, he's a throwback. He's a – when they, you talk about a throwback, like he's a guy that played 40 years ago that, you, you know, you just show up and you play. There's no extra nonsense. You just – and he's tough and competitive. And the biggest thing is he wants to win. It's all he talks about. He won in high school. Obviously, they won at St. Peter's and made the run they did last year. But our conversation is always about winning or losing. And that's – it's very rare. Usually guys want to talk about themselves first and then – which you want the balance. And you're okay with guys caring about themselves. They're going to. And you obviously want guys who want to win. Doug only talks about winning and – his habits and the way he does things are great for our program. And I've told him this, it's refreshing to have 
a guy and we've added multiple guys who just show up and work and they're in the gym all the time. I'll walk in, I walk in my office and down there shooting. They're coming back at night, three, four shooting sessions. That to me, what's about, and I always relate well to those guys. Um, and obviously right when we went in the portal, we reached out to his people and it ended up moving pretty quickly. He came to campus, kind of fell in love with the campus. He signed autographs for two hours and it was a beautiful day. There's, it was an accepted students day. There was a good buzz on campus. Um, and he's been great so far. And I think he's a kid who's got really has a chance to have two really good years and hopefully get us back and further than St. Peter's just went. Yeah. Doug's a cult hero to guys like us. I mean, I, I put him in the same category as like an Ali Farouk, Ali Farouk, excuse me, where a few years down the line, you're like, you remember, remember Doug Eater from that St. Peter's team and hopefully from that Bryant team moving forward. So I'm looking forward to him. Tell us a little bit about the recruiting efforts with Earl Timberlake. So Earl, obviously, Earl two years ago was like 20th on the NBA draft board coming out of high school. Kind of the thought of a kid who had an opportunity to be one and done. Um, went to Miami during the COVID year. Had a shoulder injury that was misdiagnosed or they, they weren't exactly sure what was wrong. So he sat, he played about 10 games, averaged 10 and 5, was back out with the shoulder. Ended up transferring to Memphis, had shoulder surgery, um, kind of still dealt with that through the whole season last year of surgery and right into a season, not really being able to rehab. So I think this is the first time that he's healthy again. Um, I mean, he's a, 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 he's got a chance to be a really good player. He's very physically gifted, you know, six, 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 seven, 220 pound, you know, big guard. He can handle it. He can score at the rim. He can post you up. He can pass, but he's another one who he works at it. You know, I think he, I hear the ball bouncing down there right now, and it's probably him shooting right now. He 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 wants it. He wants to be a pro. He wants to be great. And the best thing is you don't know, you know, a kid with that kind of reputation and who went to these high major schools and NBA draft board, how are they going to come in? Is there going to be an ego deal? Is there going to be – are they going to be grateful for what the opportunity they have here? He is an unbelievable kid. He's an unbelievable worker. You would have no idea whether he was a walk-on or your best player. And he's competitive and tough. So he's going to keep getting better as now I think he's at a stretch of playing live basketball again. Like for two years, he was on and off a lot. He wasn't practicing, played for two weeks, out for a month. I think this is the first time he's kind of gotten back in a groove of playing. I think he's playing with more of a smile on his face again, where I think he lost a little bit of that passion he had for it because of the things he went through. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny. Recruiting is, is, is a wild thing. There's guys you'll recruit for two years and either you get them and they're not who you thought they were and you just spent $12,000 and 15 trips driving back and forth to New York and New Jersey or wherever it is. And there's guys that somehow you just end up getting, you know, you didn't put as much time in or, but, they end up coming to you and they're guys who can really play. And, you know, Earl's recruitment was not a long one. Um, Chris Cole was on my staff, knew, knew Earl from high school. He had coached him for a year um, at Rock Creek when he was a freshman in high school. So they had known each other and there was a relationship and Earl wanted to go somewhere where a, he felt he would have the opportunity to get better on the floor and work huge in our skill development. And B he needed something where, he needed a comfort level. He needed to get his confidence back. He needed to get back to his old self. And I think we ended up being the right fit for him. And I'm still not hundred percent sure why he chose us. Like he had a bunch of high major schools, local high major schools around the corner, big E schools that are close to us. I'm not hundred percent sure why. Um, 
but I, I feel it was the right decision for him. I think he's around the right people. I think he's got teammates that he knew before that there's a comfort level with, and he plays with joy again. And I don't know why or what kind of happened his last couple of years. There were ups and downs. I mean, he started at Miami and played pretty significant minutes in Memphis, but I don't think he was the Earl Timberlake that people thought they were going to see. And I do believe he has an opportunity to be that guy here, and, and he's got an opportunity to be an NBA basketball player. Coach, I can really relate to the uh, struggles of recruiting from my time playing NCAA football and NCAA basketball back in like 2007. So, so everything on Xbox, you know, it's I feel that grind. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, um, you know, you brought up some great points. You guys are active in the portal. And over the summer, you advertise a position on your staff where it's almost director of roster management, portal relations. It's almost like you're building out your own little front office over there. But can you talk? I, I imagine this is going to exist on for most programs going forward, but once again, you're kind of out in front of it being a trailblazer. Can you discuss a little bit about how important that is to, to your team over there and the way you see that unfolding going forward? So that kind of will flip back kind of the analytics piece. I believe, um, and this is my own intuition and feel for recruiting. I believe there is going to be a money ball aspect to recruiting moving forward between the transfer portal and NIL. Like there's going to be a worth, you know, there's going to be at some point there's going to be, you're going to be able to figure out like, what is the worth for certain players? Are you better off taking a, not just statistically worth, but there's going to be an NIL worth to this as well. Like if guys are, are earning money from NIL collectives and NIL deals with certain companies and there's, you can have to figure out, is there a certain player worth based on stats? Are you better off with a guy transferring from Arizona down a level and what is the cost going to be for that? Are you better off for the kid transferring up a level from a division two school? Like I, I believe that there's going to be pieces to that. And I also believe that because since the transfer portal started, there are some things and the gentleman we're going to, looks like we're going to end up hiring has kind of been studying this the last couple of years. So I think we may be hopefully a little bit of a head on it, but there, there are going to be some correlations and the longer, obviously the longer you have and the more as years uh, stack up, you're going to be able to figure some things out about who was successful, who wasn't, based on up a level, down a level, stats where they came from. So for me, we're throwing a lot of things out there we're going to try and look at, and maybe they'll all be wrong. Maybe we'll find one thing out that we're ahead of the curve with that can help us get ahead. And I've always been – I've been around a lot of outside-the-box thinkers. You know, some of the best coaches I've been around were high school coaches, and they're guys who try different things, who they're not getting fired if they don't win, so they can – tweak things, try things, do different things. And working with Tim Clues, very outside the box. You know, he was a guy who was a high school coach and went to college and wasn't indoctrinated in like, this is the way we do it at the division one level. Everyone goes and recruits this time. You schedule this way. It's like, why? What's the why? Like, just explain to me, why do I need to go see a sophomore in high school play right now? Good question. Like, why am I flying to California and spending $3,000 out of our budget to fly around guys that if we're going to take more transfers and older guys should we be saving. So, and I agreed with some of those things, like, but I always did it like that too, because it was the way I was taught. So since then I've tried to just think as outside the box as possible and try and stay ahead of the curve. I mean, and I think there's always going to be ways to, you see, you know, John Calipari has kind of been a pioneer in recruiting, always finding a way to stay ahead and using his resources to put it, that program in position to be successful with everything and recruiting NIL starts there ahead on NIL. So you'd want to try and be one of those guys with the head of the curve, because I do think there are always ways to try and stay ahead, both on the floor, things you can do off the floor with your program. And we're going to try all of them. And I'm not afraid to be different. I'm not afraid to fail with it either. I know everything we try isn't going to work. And that's on the floor as well. Like I'm not afraid to put some things in and completely scrap them. And all right, this doesn't work. We'll try the next thing. Like 
I'm not caught up in it has to be this way. I'm really interested in looking at better ways to do things. And we talk about that in our office. We have really long meetings at times. They probably think I'm crazy. And I just start throwing things out there. But sometimes we don't talk about those things enough. You know, like you got to get other people to think, too. And then ideas start getting thrown out of what can we do to make our program better? What at our level can we do to separate from schools at our level or in our region or in our league? And we're always going to try and find those things. And I thought that position, having somebody who can help us evolve and maybe try and stay ahead a little bit of something that's obviously the transfer portal and, and NIL has become a huge part of college athletics and college basketball. So we're going to try and stay ahead. And, and I think we're going to have some, hopefully some tools to be able to do that with this position. Yeah. And I think as an outsider, as an objective observer, having the success that you did last year, conference tournament champions, regular season champions, going to the tournament, now you're sort of saying to yourself, how do we do this consistently? How do we become a perennial tourney team? And I think you're putting the right right pieces in, in place in order to achieve that. And one of those huge pieces last year was actually Peter Kiss, uh, a name that a lot of people in the country fell in love with. This might be a very high level, I don't know, surface level question, coach, but how do you replace a Peter Kiss? You know, you do it by committee. We're not going to have someone average 26 points a game. Um, I think we we added some talented guys and and different than Pete. I mean, Pete was an elite scorer and he is as tough as competitive and you know, people, some people didn't like his theatrics. I let Pete be Pete for the first time in his career. And I mean, Pete's like a son to me. I mean, that's, I'm as close to him as can be. And Pete had to be managed a certain way. And, and Pete was Pete and, he obviously had one of the best years in college basketball last year, 10, 30-plus point games in a row, whatever it was. So you're not replacing that. Um, but you do it by committee. I think we probably have a little bit more depth um, in terms of athleticism, in terms of guys who can score the ball. So I think we added some pieces. And we'll be different. Um, so our actions, you know, where we played a lot through Pete and Charles, we were really playing through those two guys we just have a little more um, and we have different places. I think we can score from we score a little more in the post. I think we have guys who can get to the rim, but you, you try and do it by committee. And the one hard piece and the, the thing that's hard about answering that question is we have nine new guys. So I, I got nine guys I've never coached in a game and, you know, Peter kiss practice habits. Eh, those days he was good, but he was an inconsistent practice guy. Um, but when the lights went on, he showed up like he had this competitive nastiness. And then when the lights went on, like he's the guy you want to be in a foxhole with. And I'm going to have to learn that about some of our guys that have never coached in a real game. And they've been tough and competitive so far, but things change when the lights go on. And I need to see that and see how guys respond to certain situations. Um, but I like the group we have and I like the way they're working. So we're a work in progress and figuring out how we're going to replace those points and how we're going to place hall eyes and great colleagues uh, rim protection. But before there's all said and done, I think this group has a chance to be pretty good and will it be early. I hope so. But as long as we're playing our best basketball going into March and figure out how this group is going to mesh, which I'm still not 100 percent sure of, you know, with a lot of new guys and figuring out minutes and spots and all those things. So we're still a work in progress. But I do think with the pieces we added, we have a chance to have a group that can be as good as if not better than last year. It's just a lot different. Coach, I got one more for you. I'm not sure what Subi's got over there, but speaking of the upcoming season and talking about games and having not seen your players, I just want to highlight one game that you recently announced that's going to be uh, occurring in December of this year. You're going to have a game against Coach Steve Massiello. You guys scheduled it at the historic Gaucho's gym. I, I want. I thought that was so cool to see you guys do that just because of how legendary that program is in New York City. 
obviously you and coach Masiello go way back in, uh, in terms of legendary status, your father's as well in New York city. How did that come about being scheduled? And, you know, what, what's your excitement level for being able to do something like that? Yeah. So it was getting late. Um, we still had one game left. We had talked to them kind of scheduling has become very difficult. Um, and getting games in the region has become impossible. You know, we're, I think we have one game, one road game in New England. You know, there's teams in our league who have nine or ten. Yeah, it's it's scheduling has become very difficult. And we've it's been, you know, you want to be done in all in July, August. We weren't done. It's beginning of September. Us in Manhattan was still looking. So Steve reached out. He's like, Would you be interested in, in trying to do something? He's like, But I don't want to do a home and home. Do you have any ideas? Let's do something different. So we both reached out to Joel Fisher, Madison Square Garden, and we had talked about earlier about trying to get a double header at the Garden behind a St. John's game. St. John's didn't have any non-league games at the Garden this year. So I was thinking about, and Steve's like, let's take a day, let's bounce some things, we'll think, let's reconnect tomorrow. And to me, Gaucho Gym is like, it's the Madison Square Garden of New York, you know, grassroots basketball. And if you grew up in New York, you've been you've been to Gaucho Gym, you've played in Gaucho Gym, you've watched the game in Gaucho Gym, like. I remember watching when my dad was coaching at Delphi University, watching Felipe Lopez and Stefan Marbury when the Gauchos playing Riverside Church at Gaucho Gym. So, like, some unbelievable games end on Hamilton and unbelievable players going to watch those games there as growing up. So, to me, that place is a staple of New York City basketball. You know, anyone who hears Gaucho Gym knows the Gaucho Gym. And the biggest thing for me, being able to do something to honor our fathers and, and Steve, very close to his dad. I was very close to my dad. Both were heavily involved in New York City basketball in different ways. My dad coached. Steve's dad was heavily involved in grassroots basketball and heavily connected to a lot of basketball people. Um, you know, Rick Patino. I knew Steve. Me and Steve was a ball boy for the Knicks. When my dad was working for Rick with the Knicks. We've known each other since we're kids. And to be able to do that for our fathers back in New York, to me, that's the most special part for me. Um you know, I have my father passed away five years ago and I tell people the story. He probably had between his funeral and his memorial, there were maybe 150 of his former players. And you don't realize the impact you have on people's lives until sometimes afterwards, which is too bad because there was a kid who came to to the to the memorial service who I mean, my dad, not that he he hated him. He did not like him. He hated him. And he came up to me, and said, you know, your dad changed my life. He was like a father to me. I'm looking. I'm like. I used to go to every practice. I used to practice with them. So I said, my dad did not like this dude like this. And so it's amazing how at 16 or 17, someone can teach you some things and you could butt heads. And then five, 10 years later, you realize, wait, that guy did was helping me change my life and maybe help me change some things to be successful. And for me now, we just had a tip off event in New York city. You know, like I had former pl- high school players, of my father's college players, players of my father's, guys my father played with in high school guys my father played with in college guys I coached in high school guys I coached in college guys I played with in high school and college there will be a group of people in that gym with such a high care factor for my father and my family that's special to me and my dad didn't get to see me as a head coach and it was something that he always wanted to be a part of and it's something I wish he had the opportunity to do but being able to do something like this for me is really special. And you know, I've had literally 25, 30 of his former players already reach out, make sure you're holding tickets. That's why we do what we do. And, and I want to make sure that I continue to give back the way my father did. And 
that's the reason I want to play this game. And doing it at Gaucho Gym, I know he for him, he's looking, he'll be looking down and, and loving every second of it because he'll tell me and me and Steve, like, you're the only guys crazy enough to do that. You know, other people you can play in Gaucho Gym, is it too small? Where they put in shot clocks, where they video where there's no locker rooms. So we'll get off the bus and play. I don't care. It's about the game. It's about what we're doing it for. It's special to me. I get back to New York and get to see a place we recruit, get to see a bunch of people I know, a bunch of friends and family. It'll be a great game, two really good teams, a coach I know does an unbelievable job. So I think it'll be a lot of fun, and it's different. You know, at our level, we got to be a little outside the box. You know, you see Kentucky's playing Gonzaga, and the first game's neutral, and we got to be outside the box too. We're going to play a bunch of home-and-homes and keep doing the same thing. Whoever wins and loses that game, and of course we're going to go trying to win, but at the end of the day, it's not break, making or breaking any of our careers, and I think it's a special event in a special place. I think our guys will enjoy it. The place will be packed. It'll be loud. I think it'll be fun. And I'm into doing whatever. I'll go play wherever. I'm I'm pretty different with that stuff. I want to go and play. I want to do some different things. And I want to be able to enjoy this. You know, like we work really hard and I tell our guys this and we got to be able to enjoy this too. We get to coach like or play like 30 plus games a year and we work at it every other day. So we better go enjoy these. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to go play. So I want to go play at Kentucky. I want to go play at Duke. I, I want to do some things that can be special and special experiences for our staff and for our players. To me, that's what this is about, giving our guys experiences and, and, and putting them in position to, to enjoy this college experience as much as they can. Very well put, Coach. And two of those games that I was looking at on your schedule, at Syracuse, at Cincinnati, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to get you out of here on a few more questions, but do you view those two sort of as a measuring stick for this program, power schools? Yeah, I mean, of course you're going there to win. And we've we've won some money games and we've been very competitive. We had, we're up at Iowa our first year with two minutes left. We missed a three at the buzzer to beat Rutgers. We beat UMass. We beat Fordham. We had Syracuse on the ropes two years ago. We missed two shots at the buzzer to beat them. Um, so we've had some we've been competitive in. We also went to Houston and – we're down 70 with three seconds left. One of the guys had a three to cut it to 67. I would have rather lost by 70 at that point. Um, I had Kelvin Sampson down the sideline, like Jared, I don't know anyone else left to put in. So you go from like beating a UMass or almost beating a Syracuse to feeling pretty good to about feeling as poorly as you can and want to crawl under a rock and never come out. Cause that's embarrassing. You know, like you, you lost by 70 points and I have to take that. Like, that's me. That's my team. It's on me. It's, it's our body of work, but I take that very personally. So you find out either way. You learn about your teams, and hopefully we'll be in a position that we can compete and have a chance to win those games. But sometimes you end up losing and you learn about your group as well. And we needed that early on. We weren't prepared to be a great team early. Um, we were still a little immature. We went some, through some things with injuries and suspensions. We were not good, and we needed to go through that to get to where we went. And every season is different with that stuff. Sometimes you get off to a great start and you get on a roll and just play good basketball and your team's completely connected. Sometimes you're dysfunctional and you find a way to get connected, but you're always going to go through some hard things and you have to. And that's why we want to play a challenging schedule. You know, it's, you're talking about Cincinnati at Cincinnati, at Syracuse, at Tulane, at Florida International, at Florida Atlantic, Liberty on neutral site, uh, Towson here. You're talking about four teams when we picked to win their league. You're talking about an ACC team, two conference uh to American Athletic Conference team. So it's going to be challenging non-conference. We'll learn about ourselves and we'll know what we are by the time we go into league play and figure out what do we need to improve on? What do we need to change? And then at the end of the day, we got to be playing our best basketball late in the season, but we're showing up to go win games early. We're showing up to don't, don't think for a second, we're not going in there, not just to win, but we believe we're going to win those games. And 
there's no reason we can't. We have talented guys who really compete and really work at it, and we'll show up and fight. That's the one thing I can promise. We'll be there, and uh, we'll be ready to compete. Last few quick hitters for you. Providence has the National Coach of the Year, Big East champions, and they had a terrific Sweet 16 run. URI has a breath of fresh air with Archie Miller and a lot of optimism there. You guys, tournament team, NEC champs. Is is the smallest state in the country sort of a sleeping giant when it comes to college basketball? You know what it really is? Because there's a love for basketball in the state that I had no idea of. Um, before I got here, you know, I didn't know Rhode Island, their high, high school basketball is okay. Um, pretty, some pretty good prep school programs, you know, obviously the four division one programs, but I didn't know the state had such a love and passion for college basketball. And you saw that this year, like when Rhode Island's good, that place is bumping. Providence was good this year. If you looked at their crowds, place was unbelievable. If you saw our last five home games, I mean, we were, we had as good mid-major crowds as I've ever been around. And I've been in some pretty good venues and some pretty good games. I mean, this place was wild. And that's because there's a love for basketball in the state. And when you start having success, it tends, people tend to follow, but you know, the crowds we were having to finish the season. Like I played in the NEC was an assistant in the NEC. Now a head coach, never seen crowds like that before in the league. And I mean, it has a lot of it has to do with the success, but other teams had success too, and never put crowds like that night in night out. So and, and you now being around the state going on my fifth year, you hear people talking about it. Now they're starting to talk about Brian a little bit. And we're, we're kind of in that conversation now. But there's a lot of college basketball talk. There's a lot of people who are into it. And it really is a great state for college basketball. Here's what we got to do, coach. All right. And you let me know how I can play a role in facilitating this. You know how Indiana has the Crossroads Classic. They got Indiana, Notre Dame, Purdue, uh, Butler. How do we do that with Rhode Island? All right. Let's get, let's get you three and Brown. What do you think? I'm with it 100%. I've said that from jump. We should do it every year, but we got to get some other guys on board. I would love to. I think it makes sense. I think people would come. I think in a state like ours with four Division One teams, I think it's a home run, but I might be the minority in uh, in that feeling. Mark, that's our uh, side project, okay? We we get to work on that. Uh, Last couple quick hitters. If you're a sophisticated listener, if you know Coach Grasso, if you – been following them but especially this episode he's been dropping a lot of easter eggs and he's been mentioning this one name quite a bit coach Cluse. i saw he was able to attend one of your practices last week can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him uh, I, I know you sort of sprinkled it, uh, tidbits earlier in the in the interview tell us a little bit about your relationship with coach Cluse and uh you know what you were able to experience with him just a few days ago you know, it's fun. Like all, all, we go way back. So people don't know for, my uh, father played against his brother in college. My dad was at Hofstra. His brother was at St. John's and their whole family played at St. John's. They were a basketball family. I knew both Long Islanders. I played at St. Anthony's. He coached at St. Mary's. He won his first state championship against my team. My senior year, they beat us in the state championship. Um, I had a ton of respect for him. He had a ton of respect for me. I don't think we liked each other. I, coaching and playing against each other. And we still tell stories about different things that were said by me to his players or during games. Um, but that's us being competitive and, you know, that's who we are. You fast forward, Tim leaves St. Mary's, starts coaching in college. Um, I was at Fordham and didn't retain the position. I get a call from Tim Cluse at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night. He had just gotten the Iona job like 10 minutes earlier, went on social media I didn't even know it was a candidate. I was kind of shocked. Wow, Tim Clues got the own a job. I had just taken some NyQuil. I'm laying on the couch. I'm out of a job. I'm kind of miserable at this point, not knowing what to do the next day. And he calls me, he said, what are you doing right now? 
Uh, and I thought he was talking about like in my life. I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't retain me at Fordham. And um, he's like, well, uh, where are you? I was like laying on my couch. Like, well, could you meet me in my office in 20 minutes? I was like, where, where are you? He's like, I'm up at Iona. Drove up, met him. We literally talked for 20 minutes. And I had a couple of other things going on. I was to fly out an interview for a job at UTEP. There was a division two head coaching job I was involved with. So I was kind of in just waiting to see what would shake out. And me and Tim talked for 20 minutes and he said, what do you want out of this? I said, I, I need to win. I said, I didn't, the last few jobs I'd been at, we struggled, you know, we didn't have the success I would have liked. And I said, I, I want to be a part of winning by the end of the conversation, literally 20 minutes later, he said, you want the job? I said, yeah. He said, take the night, sleep on it. I said, no, I'll be here tomorrow. So I woke up at six o'clock and was in the office at six 30 and started working. Um, and we just got really, Tim's a basketball savant. Um, one of the best basketball minds I've ever been around better person than coach. And he's a great coach. He's, he's become a big brother to me. You know, I speak to him basically every day. Um, he's helped me evolve as a person, as a coach and stuff on the floor is great. And he helped me with a ton of it, but being able to balance your family and basketball, being able to understand that like, my children come first, you know, my family and my wife and my children, that, that's always number one. And you can be really good at both and it's hard and you have to figure out the balance because put a lot of time into coaching and it's hard being a good father and husband and all the time that that stuff takes, but you can do both and you need to do both. And that's, I'm a family guy and I love coaching basketball, but we're basketball coaches. Sometimes we take it a little and listen, it's high pressure and all those things, but we're basketball coaches and coach them hard, help these young men be successful, go compete and love it, but also go home and love your kids. And, you know, my children around practices all the time because the way I was raised by my father and by, and by coach Kloos and, you know, so I haven't seen coach and, and we talk daily, but I hadn't seen him in three and a half years. So this was the first time he was back in a gym at a basketball event since he got out of coaching and, Special to me that he was here with us, got a chance to see us, spend time with my team, spend time with my family, um, and then talk to my guys because he's smart about life. You know, like he's a really smart life person. And obviously it all equates together, but the lessons that he talks about are real. And the things he's done it for long enough that there's a track record of he has great relationships with his guys after they're done. Now, when you play for Tim, it's hard. Yeah, we're de you're demanding because you want to be great. You want to push these guys and make them understand what it's going to take to be a great player and what it's going to take to be successful in life. Those lessons will carry forward. And you, again, like I talked about the story with my dad, one of his former players, sometimes those guys don't realize till they're 25. And then they call you and tell you they love you. Like, it's crazy how it doesn't hit until a certain time. And then a guy realizes, like, this person did so much for my life. Tim did that for me. Tim that did that for so many players. And I'm blessed to have him as a sounding board, as a fan, as a friend. He's very, very special to me. And it was great seeing him healthy and vibrant and his energy back. Like he said, I told him, I said, you sounded like you used to in huddles with us. I said, and the other thing I know is that you kept telling me positive things about practice. I said, I know you're lying because we can get on the phone. You're going to tell me everything I did wrong, everything we did wrong. I said, you better go back to him. I want all the negatives. I need to know what I got to improve on. And he was laughing because that's him. He's true. He, he's honest. He's candid. And he's never hid from being himself. And whether you love him or hate him as a coach or the way he cares, he's a great person who cares about people and does right by people. And he's someone who, who's really, really special to me. Yeah, certainly one of the good guys in college basketball. All right, coach, we're going to get you out of here on the last two. 
best environment you've played in cannot be uh home probably at kansas uh, that place is just place is different you walk in there it feels different and you don't realize like it's not this when you walk in you expect so you expect it to look a little different and then for shooter and then you come back in the fans are there two hours before the game and Andrew Wiggins catches a dunk and Joel Embiid goes through his legs, spin move and one and the place erupts. Unbelievable environment. We actually were almost going to play there this year, but that's one of those places I would like to get back to. Um, there's a couple other Duke, Kentucky, Carolina. There's some, some places I'd love to have the opportunity to coach in. That is three for our last three. You just said Kansas. I asked the same question to Evan Batty, former Colorado Buffalo. He said the same thing. Coach Martin said the actually Coach Martin was appalled and sickened that I even asked that question. He was like, "Are you are you kidding me?" It's clearly Allen Fieldhouse, so it's it's, it's, a, I mean, it's really a special place. And so Joe Dooley, who was an assistant there, was in East Carolina. He's back there now. He's a very close friend. And every time we talk, he always tells me how special the place is. And through when he was there before, and we talk about it now, being back there now. I mean, it, it's a, it's so, it's just unique. Like it, it's a different vibe. It's, it's just different. You can't explain it to someone who's never coached in there before. It's just a the place is great. The environment's great. And that's what's special about college basketball. There's venues like that. And, and people, you, you get to die. I was an assistant coaching in Kansas in front of that crowd in Allen Fieldhouse. Like what's better than that? We get to coach basketball and go places like that. Like, are you kidding me? But what, else, what else would you want to do? It's, it's, it's nothing better. How do you not walk in there with a smile and listen, hopefully we win. Hopefully we're competitive, but it's great. Nothing better than that. If if your juices can't get flowing from that, uh, I don't know what does. And you ain't wired like me because having the opportunity to do those things is like a childhood dream for me. And again, I'm not showing up happy to be there, but I do can reflect and can say, you know, this is pretty cool. And if you can't do when I was younger, I, I didn't do, I, took everything way too serious and you win, 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 get better, get better, get better. You got to enjoy this stuff. And you have to make sure that your guys do too, because you work way too hard not to be able to enjoy it. Absolute cathedral of college hoops. And I think that's very well put. All right. Very last uh, segment that we have all of our guests go through. It's called bring them up on stage coach. Do you have any assistant coaches, colleagues, former players, anyone that you could refer us to? to jump onto theater in college hoops and be so gracious with their time as you have been. Absolutely. You know, Sean Armand would be a great one. Sean played for us at Iona, no division one or division two scholarship offers coming out of high school. Actually give you a really quick story. When we played in the NCAA tournament, it was in uh, the conference tournament. It was in Springfield, our second or third year at Iona. And we had, we ended up practicing at AIC, which was near their facility, division two school, Massachusetts. And, Sean had went up to work out for them and they passed on him. And he, for at that point for us, he was already an 1800 point scorer leading, I think the leading three point shooter in Mac history. Now he's already had a 10 year NBA uh, professional career overseas. He's made a ton of money, been really successful. So the coach was watching us practice. Letowski goes, can you believe I passed on that kid? And no one, I mean, he was, no one knew he was coming out of high school. Nobody recruited him. He had committed to play for me at Fordham. And then when I went to Iona kind of, he had a little bit of buzz, had a couple other options, ended up coming to Iona. But he was a kid that – I remember Tom Konchalski, the legendary best scouting service ever, who got 98% of them right, told me, he's like, that kid can't play Division One basketball. So I hope, I hope you're wrong because he's coming. So I hope – and some kids' work ethics and character and, and trump all those things, you know. And he was a kid who just kept out working everyone, 
kept getting better and ended up being one of the best shooters in college basketball. And I think they did something the other day, like he was ranked like the second best shooter in terms of some analytics percentage in college basketball in the last 15 years. And he was a kid who had no division one or division two scholarship offers. Incredible. We'll get him on the horn. May have to use you as an intermediary Absolutely. there, coach. Well, we're going to let you go. I know you're a very busy man. Thank you so much for spending the time. This was a real treat, and we will be watching you guys very closely. Looking forward to this upcoming season, Coach. Best of luck. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate you having me. All right, we want to thank Coach Grasso again for jumping onto the program. That was a ton of fun, Shark. What a blast that was. What was your favorite part? What were some of the, the key takeaways for you as we enter the season here in a couple of weeks? So two two big takeaways, one about their team and one kind of a, that I was smirking about in the back of my head. The first one being how he, he discusses the analytics and how he adapts it towards his team, right? You know, he's not going to follow the same important statistic. He's not going to put a certain value on each thing. It depends on what his personnel is. And one thing that I've been reading about is the fact that, look, I, I'm not going to give this guy a bunch of shots. I'm not going to give him the green light if the analytics don't back it up. But our boy, Dougie Eater, Coach Grasso has given him the green light for 15 threes a game. I read that out on the internet at some point. So he clearly has the analytics backing him up, and we can see him taking a huge step forward. The other point I wanted to bring up, which is unique to you and I, is uh, the the commentary about the playing at the historic Gaucho gym. I didn't, I didn't have the nerve. I didn't have the balls, frankly, to speak up to Coach Grasso and say that you and I actually faced off with the Gauchos many, many moons ago. And we may have been the least competitive opponent that that historic uh, organization has ever encountered in their life. So that was funny to me. I can't imagine uh, the fact that you and I would have been, even been looped in that conversation with these legendary coaches that build powerhouse programs. But, you know, we're a little blip of history right there. There's a six degrees of separation, I feel like, with us in a lot of college basketball circles. So the Gauchos, right? Yes, that's one. But also we were able to see Dougie Eater live and in person at your bachelor party uh, in Atlantic City, when they slayed, who, who did they beat? Purdue, Purdue. That's right. So well, we were in Atlantic City. That game was in Philly. Just for the that, that's right. Thank you. At home. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So uh, yeah, we were able to see Dougie Eater in person before. Now he, uh, when he was on St. Peter's, now currently on Bryant. But yeah, and and I'm a big tall tale guy, right? Where there is a faction of truth to a story, and then after years and years and years of layered storytelling there might become a myth. I think I'm at the point now where we played Kemba Walker. Can that be validated? We played Kemba against the, when yeah. he was on the Gauchos. Uh, honestly, there, there's, there's an old, I mean, you can say things and if there's no way a box score exists out there. So nobody can disprove it. Certainly we can't prove it, but nobody can disprove it at the same time as well. So yeah, we did. I love it. All right. Let's go ahead and get on out of here on a segment you're old as fuck you're old as fuck here's a name a little cross-pollination for you there shark uh jizzle james now why am i bringing up jizzle james he was recently in the in the news because he just committed to cincinnati west miller doing a terrific job down there in cincinnati making them competitive again i'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing i believe year two under west uh there at cincinnati but jizzle james is the son of not an NBA player, but rather a notable NFL player. Can you tell me who that is? Edgerin James. It is Edgerin James. 
the former Miami, it. yeah, the former Miami Hurricane, the former Colt, the former Cardinal. Hilarious. Uh, I, I might be missing another team towards the end of his career, but yeah, Jizzle James is now going to be on your TVs uh, in the college basketball world. But if you're feeling old, he's the son of Edron James, and that that is truly cra- they get crazier and crazier by the year. Of course, especially when you're starting to look at all of these studs coming into the into college basketball, these studs going to the G League, these studs for mock drafts. When you look at them, and they're born in 2003, 2004, where not only you know, some of your more formative, memorable times occur, but you remember everything about that time period. And I, I think a lot of people remember Edger and James, who was on our TVs just about, what, 10, 12 years ago. Now we get Jizzle. Well, another thing that makes you feel old, too, is you go back to that interview with Coach Grasso, and we find out he gets his first head coaching opportunity when he was 29 years old. You want to know what we were doing at 29, Soup? We, we were doing, I think we haven't even thinking about starting a podcast. I mean, that's the, you, you compare two lives in the college basketball world. You got one guy leading a division one program. You got two losers thinking about starting a podcast. Hey, what can you do? Say la vie. I believe, is, is that a, oh, that's beautiful. appropriate at this point? Is that French right there? That's Thank beautiful. You. I know what it is. Yep. All right. Let's go ahead. Get on out of here. We want to thank coach Grasso one more time for, for his time. Uh, we want to, very much wish him the best of luck. We're going to be closely looking at Brian. I suggest you do as well. Shark, great to have you back, Father. Let's uh, let's keep this momentum rolling. We only got a few more weeks left until the season. It is getting close. Great to see you again, Father. All right. We'll catch you next time here on Theater and College Hoops.